you uh, so that you can invite some friends. We have uh, a special guest here today. I'm excited uh, for you to hear the message. Before I get into introducing him, I want to encourage you to listen to a message and how many times he references the minor prophets. We've just spent the last 12 weeks talking about the minor prophets, so it's good to uh, just hear how that came together today. But uh, our guest is uh, Pastor Doug Schmidt. Doug Schmidt has been the pastor of Woodside for the last several uh, decades. Can I say that? Uh, for a long time. Uh, but he has since retired, and now he is the executive director of an organization called uh, Barnabas Ministries. And Barnabas Ministries is an organization that comes alongside pastors like myself and does mentoring. He uh, puts pastor groups together. Uh, he's become a friend and a mentor to me, uh, but to so many other pastors in the Metro Detroit, really with a heart and a desire just to see pastors be healthy and to lead healthy because that's the only way we're going to have healthy churches is to have healthy pastors leading them. Uh, he has a real passion for that, and you're in for a treat. I got to sit through this uh, through this first service, and uh, he has a wonderful message for you. So would you welcome Doug Schmidt? You're getting double Doug today. <laughs> I'm the other Doug. Yeah. We have a th I'm, I'm the lesser Doug. This is the greater Doug. <laughs> Only in weight, I'm afraid. <laughs> it is great to be with you. I've been here a few times before, but it's always been for a funeral. So this is a much more happy occasion to be worshiping with you. Didn't we have great worship this morning, folks? Just lifting up the name of Jesus. Um, I'm always reminded when I come into a place I've never been before as a speaker to kind of watch my language, make sure that I use words that we all know and I don't get in trouble. I was reminded of the story of the mother from the Midwest who was visiting in Texas with her young son. And they were staying at a hotel, and they were walking down the street, and he saw a cowboy. And he said, Mommy, Mommy, look at that bull-legged cowboy. And she said, Don't speak like that. You're going to embarrass him, and that's not proper, and don't do it again. And it wasn't long, same thing. Mommy, Mommy, look at that bull-legged cowboy. She said, That's it. I'm going to lock you up if it happens again. I'm going to lock you up in the hotel room with all of Shakespeare's writings until you can learn how to speak correctly. So that scared him to death, but not enough to not say it again. And when he did, mommy, mommy, look at that bow-legged cowboy. She said, up, up to the room. So put him in the room, all of Shakespeare's writings. And he was there for quite a while. She, she came, got him. She said, are, are you ready to come out? He says, I am. So he came out. They were walking down the street for breakfast. And sure enough, right in front of him was a bull-legged cowboy. But he was ready. He looked at his mom, he looked at the cowboy, and he said, tally-ho, what men are these that wear their legs in parentheses? <laughs> so I'm going to be very careful today. I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, this is the beginning day of the greatest eight-day stretch in world history. Started with Palm Sunday, and the eighth day, Jesus Christ came forth from the grave on Easter Sunday. Greatest eight days in world history. We were just moving to Troy 30 years ago, and we were with a realtor who happened to be from the church, and we were driving along looking at houses, my wife and I, and him. And probably a half a dozen times at least, as we were driving around looking at houses, he would point out a house. And he would say, I had a chance to buy that five years ago or 10 years ago. I wish I would have. I could have made a lot of money. 
I had a chance to buy that house. I wish I would have. If I had, I could have made a lot of money. And I looked at that whole morning when we traveled together as he shared, I could have, I could have, I could have, I could have missed opportunities. Have you had missed opportunities in your life? We all had the chance to buy Bitcoin in July of 2017 <laughs> and missed opportunity. You buy it today, it's much more expensive. Or maybe a guy says, uh, I, I had this girl, I wanted to marry her. Um, and so everything looked great. I hadn't asked her yet. And he comes home from college only to find out she's engaged to somebody else. Missed opportunities. Sometimes missed opportunities come with second chances or third chances. You get a mulligan and you want to do it different the next time around. Sometimes those missed opportunities have a shelf life. And when you've missed it, you've missed it. And there's not, another, there's not a second chance. When I look at Palm Sunday morning, a couple of thousand years ago, 30, 33 AD, it was a huge missed opportunity. And we want to look at that today. Would you, if, you, if you're not in Luke chapter 19, would you join me? The words will also be on the screen here as well from these verses. But let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on. Jesus was making his way towards Jerusalem. The time has come for him to move down the, from Jericho or really from the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He made one little detour route up to Caesarea Philippi, 30 miles out of his way, by the way, to teach a lesson about who he was in a way and in a setting that the disciples, in particular Peter, would never, ever forget. And now he's making his way, and in the, by the way, in that chapter, Matthew chapter 16, where it's covered, he mentions two things for the very first time. He mentions the cross, and he mentions the church. This was going to be the future. This was going to be his future. And so as he's making his way down uh, through Jericho and then on to Jerusalem, keep in mind that up until this point, Jesus would perform miracles, but then he would drift off out of the limelight. He did that. Uh, just a few days earlier when he uh, performed the miracle of the um, uh, loaves and, and fishes where he fed 5,000 plus people. Remember where that happened? And the story is told in John chapter 6. When it happened, and after it happened, Jesus slipped out because in the words of Scripture, he was afraid they would force him to be king. So he went up to the mountain for some time alone to pray. The very next chapter, John chapter 7, his brothers said to him, we need to go up to the feast or the festivals. And Jesus said, no. He didn't want to do it because he didn't want to put himself in the face of the crowd who were looking for a king. But the king they were looking for was different. The king they were looking for was a deliverer who could deliver them from the Romans and take the land back and give them their autonomy. So they wanted this political um, a national savior. They were looking for a spiritual savior. And Jesus withdrew from that. There were times Jesus would perform miracles. It was, it's, it's interesting to me and fascinating and almost unbelievable. He would perform a miracle and, and make a man who'd never seen in his life be able to see. Can you imagine that? Taking a little mud from the ground and putting it on a man's eyes. And for the first time in his life, he can see his mom and his dad, perhaps his brothers and sisters. 
For the first time in his life, he can see the sun that he could only feel before. It's a miracle. He had to be overjoyed with words unspeakable. But then Jesus said to him, don't tell anybody. Can you believe that? How could you not? Don't tell anybody. It's interesting, ironically, he tells us, go tell everybody. And we remain silent. It doesn't make sense. And so this is what was going on. Jesus was, uh, almost seems to be doing something that doesn't make sense. It's not certainly in concert with what he'd done before, withdrawing from the crowds, trying to stay out of the spotlight. He's moving right into it. And keep in mind, this is Jerusalem during the time of festival. For the following Thursday would be Passover. The next day would begin a seven-day time period called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The city of Jerusalem, historians will tell us, it's about 40,000 people. But during these festivals, people will come from all over the region. Uh, and so it's, 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 the, the city's booming, perhaps to uh, 250,000 people. I've heard estimates as high as a million people. And they're all there. They're all excited. Uh, they're, they're seeing people they hadn't seen since the previous festival. They're joyous. They're celebrative. But they're asking a question. The fame of Jesus, because of his miracles, had spread. And they're asking the question, will Jesus be here? Will Jesus come to the Passover this year? Will Jesus be here? They would soon have the answer to their question. When early that Sunday morning, Jesus, who had make, made his way down, now landed in Bethany and um, Bethpage and Bethany, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, is going to make his way down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And so I want to share with you that time is of the essence. Therefore, we must invite Jesus into our lives and offer him sincere praise. Time is of the essence. So let's invite Jesus into our lives. And when we do, let's offer him sincere praise. I want to share with you three action steps that we, 2,000 years later, can put in motion because of that Palm Sunday a long time ago. Are you with me yet? Okay, a few of you are. That's good. Luke chapter 19, the first one is decide that Jesus is the Messiah King. Let me read starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem up in the hill country. When we say up, it's usually north. When they say up in the land of Israel, it wasn't north. It was up in elevation and Jerusalem was sitting up in the hills. He said, let's go up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying the colt? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it uh, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sent Jesus, they sat Jesus, set Jesus on it. By the way, I would not recommend this if you're ever picked up for suspicion of shoplifting. And the manager of the store said, Why did you take the radio? And you say, Well, the Lord had need of it. 
it's not going to work. You better have a good lawyer. <laughs> but the, it's fascinating because Jesus is wanting his disciples to know exactly who he is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the son of God. He is God who came into this world to save people from their sins. And in the process, he teaches. In the process, he performs miracles. He wanted all of his disciples to know that. And so he said to two disciples that day, go and find this colt and tell him the Lord. He's claiming deity. The Lord, the sovereign one, has need of him. The psalmist reminds us in the 24th Psalm in verse number one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So Jesus had rights to that colt, to that donkey. And his rights as the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the universe makes him Lord of all. And go, get the colt. And yet immediately we look at, we read the story and we say, why, why didn't Jesus just walk? It's called, we call it the Mount of Olives. And if you can imagine a large hill, um, it's a large hill and you look down the hill and you can walk down um, and the, and on the pathway. And then the, at the bottom of the hill is a valley. And the other side of the valley is this beautiful city of Jerusalem. It's a walled city. And the, the buildings as well as the walls are all solid or at least faced with this yellow limestone. So that when the sun shines on it, it's absolutely beautiful. That's one of the reasons, it's the reason, the city is called the Golden City, the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to be riding a donkey down that. And you say, why? Why a, why a donkey? Let me take you back to Zechariah chapter 9. In verse 9, where the, uh, the, the prophet is writing hundreds of years before Jesus came. And this is what he writes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I, uh, Zechariah is prophesying it. He said, it's going to happen. It's going to come. And that Sunday morning when Jesus commissioned two of the disciples to go get the donkey, basically saying, the time has come. My time has come. Later on that Thursday afternoon, he's praying to the, the Father. And he says, I pray that I will glorify you for my time has come. Who would ever would have thought that the cross would bring glory to, Jesus, glory to God? It did in so many ways. So Jesus is saying, by using the cult, my time has come. And what was prophesied hundreds of years earlier is happening today. I am the Messiah King. You remember the story when uh, David had been king of Israel. Remember, David wanted to build a, a house for the Lord to worship. And we've been worshiping, we've been worshiping in a tent. And yet I live in a wainscoted house. It's beautiful and it's not right. So he said, I want to build a house for you, a big, beautiful house for you. And he got the prophet Nathan and said, Nathan, I want to build this house for God. Nathan said, go for it. That night they both went to bed. Nathan, when he went to bed, 
God spoke to him and said, you're out of line. I'm paraphrasing. You're out of line. I don't want David to build me a house. Can you imagine the prophet of God probably didn't sleep the rest of the night because he knew the next morning he had to go back to King David and say, uh, I made a mistake. David, I can't imagine him sleeping much either. He's got the go-ahead from the prophet, the spokesperson for God. So he's maybe sketching plans on a napkin of how to build this thing and where to get the resources and the supplies and so forth. The next morning when Nathan knocks on the door and said, uh, David, uh, God said no. Have you ever got a no answer to your prayers? Something you wanted so badly and you prayed that God would give it to you? And you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and the answer came back clearly, no. That's hard. And sometimes God gives us the reason for the no. And sometimes we find out the reason years later, where you say, thank you, Lord. I remember Mrs. Billy Graham once wrote, she said, I'm glad the Lord has answered no to a lot of my prayers or else I would have married the wrong guy many times. (laughs) So God's no's are not always bad. They're, They're always good for us, but we don't always understand. Sometimes he'll give us the reason for the no immediately, sometimes down the road. Maybe for some it'll be when we get to heaven. But God gave David a reason. He said, David, I don't want you to build me a house because I want to build you a house. That's a pretty good reason, isn't it? Yes. From your throne and from your kingdom, I want to send one who will sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever and ever. And every king subsequent to David, when they came to the public coronation, they had the private coronation where they were, they were named and then the public coronation, the people had to be asking as they were celebrating, Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one who's going to sit on David's throne forever and ever and ever? And Solomon was the first. By the way, that question was answered soon in the reign of that king because many of them were not righteous. Um, And certainly none of them met the standard of righteousness that Jesus had. When Solomon, Solomon the son of David, was going to be anointed king. He was placed on the mule of David, and he came into the city in a royal entry on the mule. That was to signify that this happened. We have a new king. The mule signified peace. He's not riding in a war war horse to conquer. He's riding in on a donkey. Peace. And it also means humility. Humility. Jesus wanted everybody to understand who he really was, who he was. Years, or excuse me, uh, days earlier, up at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Remember the answer? Some say you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Peter responded by saying, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus responded by saying, blessed are you, 
son of Jonah. For flesh and blood had not revealed it unto you, but our Father who is in heaven. So Peter got it. He knew who Jesus really was. Peter, James, and John had the opportunity on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus takes him up there. And in those moments, the veil of his humanity was split aside so they could see who he really was. He was God. They would never forget the shining glow of Jesus that day. They knew who he was. Now, he's saying to an entire city, you decide. You decide, who am I? The right decision is he's the Messiah King. I met Gil on uh, December of 2019. Gil's last name is the first name that appears in a long list of law partners in a law firm. Uh, Gil had started it and then moved on a few decades ago to make his uh, fortune in other industries. And I met him in that December of 2019. We were introduced by a mutual friend. And Gil told me his story that day. We spent three hours together. And he said, uh, I grew up in church, but I saw hypocrisy in the church, and I left the church when I was 11. And I've been on a 70-year journey in a wilderness. I said, who is Jesus? I don't know. But I got to find out because I have stage four cancer and I don't know who he is. That began a journey for us together where we would read and we would study. He shortly after that, after his last chemo treatment here, he moved down to his place in Naples, Florida. And we had conversation every three weeks, maybe every four weeks where I would call him I'd say, Gil, what are your obstacles? Well, I need to know if Jesus is really God. So I would give him some titles of books to read and get him into the scriptures and the gospels. Before the telephone conversation was over, Gil had ordered the books. And I close every conversation the same way. I said, Gil, you know, I love you and I'm praying for you. And Gil would always respond by saying, Doug, I love you too but I wish we'd met 25 years ago. Every month, we'd have that conversation. And every month, we'd look at tackling different obstacles to his faith. One month, he said, I need, I need to know, did Jesus really rise from the dead? In my mind, I can't conceive of somebody being dead for three days and coming to life. I can't conceive of it. So I gave him some books to read, and again, he ordered them. We worked through those issues, and by November of 2020, I said, Gil, where are you in your faith now? What, are, what obstacles are left that we need to explore? He said, there are none. There are none. He committed his life to Jesus Christ. I said, let me make sure that we're on the same page. I said, Gil, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and do you believe he's God? He said, yes. I said, Gil, do you believe that Jesus Christ came into the world for, to save people from their sins, and he went, when he went to the cross, he took all of your sins and all of my sins on himself, for God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Gil, do you believe 
that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. He says, I believe that. One last question, Gil. Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? He says, I am. And we had many meetings after that, some here, and my wife and I had dinner with him and his wife down in Naples. And it was so exciting to see a man who'd come to realize who Jesus really was. Folks, we can be wrong on a lot of things, but we cannot be wrong on this. Yes. We cannot be wrong on the question, who is Jesus? Right. For he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Some people will say to you, there are many roads to salvation. There are many roads to heaven. Um, Jesus said that's not true. It's not true. My, my, the first challenge and action step from this is decide that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're on that journey yet, uh, great. Just continue asking the questions and go to scriptures to get answers and ask people in this wonderful place, tell me who Jesus is. Direct me to his true identity to, to be right on this question. The second action step I want us to look at, and that is to fill the hollow place of worship, to fill up, the, to fill up any hollow praise of Jesus. Let me begin, continue reading from verse uh, uh, 36. And as they rode, as he rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Quoting there from uh, uh, Psalm 118, uh, verses 25 and 26. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke the crowd, or rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When I read that passage, I think of the joyous occasion this was, where the people are celebrating, they're saying all the right things, and they're doing all the right things, yes. throwing their cloaks, putting the palm branches on, which is a, uh, the historic symbolism of praise uh, in Israel. They were doing all of this. It had to be beautiful. It had to be beautiful to hear those words, Hosanna, salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's time. He's here. It's interesting to think that Jesus evaluates our worship. Isn't it? He evaluates our worship. And if you were to evaluate the worship based on what we see on the, the, the surface, the, 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 are they saying the right things? Yes. Are they doing the right things? Yes. But Jesus saw be, be beyond that. He saw within them. They didn't understand who he was yet. And the worship was hollow. Is it possible for our worship to be hollow? And that is, do we worship Jesus for who he is or for who we want him to be as our supplier as the one who can make our wish list come true? Is it possible that our worship is hollow and that we've made it something about ourselves and not something about Jesus? 
I love what Pastor Doug said to the worship team this morning uh, around 8 o'clock. They were gathering together, going through the details, uh, and, he, and he just reminded them. He said, remember, we're not performers. This is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I've often shared with our worship team at Woodside over the years that you evaluate your worship, but uh, if you're not careful, if we're not careful, we evaluate the worship based on the mechanics. Were we on time? Was it too loud? Was it too soft? Was the, were the, the drums in sync and all of this? So we're evaluating the mechanics. And that's important, but not most important. I challenge them, first of all, evaluate the music from the throne, the throne of God. Did we lift up the name of God? Did we lift up the name of Jesus? Did we honor his word? Did we pray sufficiently so that people could see a clear vision of Jesus? Then you evaluate from the point of the worshiper. Was it clear? Were they drawn in? Were they engaged? And then finally, the stage. Jesus, or God, in, in, in the book of Amos, and let me share just a, a portion of what he said. As he's, the people were worshiping, and I'm sure the worship, uh, from a mechanical point of view, is excellent. The, the voices were great. But notice what he said. Is, is, not the day of, is, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, despise your feasts. This is God speaking. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me the burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your, your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's he saying? I hear your worship. I hear your praise band. I hear your vocalists. But stop the music because I don't like it. What's wrong? It's your heart. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And I'm not just talking about corporate worship now. As Pastor Doug said earlier, our whole life is a response to God in worship, right? The way we go to work, the way we drive our car the way we interact with people. Is it possible that there's something hollow in our worship when we become duplicious, when we're praising God at one point and using vulgarity at another? Or we're trusting God for salvation, but not trusting him for our daily life or sustenance? That's, there's a hollow spot in our worship. Jesus sees it. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus stood in the midst of the seven golden lampstands and he looked at them. And the Bible describes, he looked at them with eyes as a blazing fire, penetrating through all their reports. So when Jesus wants to know about Woodside Bible or what Grace, Grace Community Church, he doesn't have to read our annual reports. He sees way beyond that. He sees who we are. He sees who I am and sees who you are. If there's any hollow spot in our worship, let's fill it up with genuine praise. One last um, action step is found in the next few verses, and that's don't miss the time of Jesus' visitation. Starting in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, you had e would that you, even you, had known in this day the things that make for peace. 
but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade between, around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with, within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This, again, seems uh, um, incongruent with what's happening. There's worship, there's praise, there's joy, there's excitement. Uh, there are people all around. And when you look closely, when Jesus saw the city, the tears came down his face. Whenever you see tears, you want to know the story behind them, right? Sometimes the story is obvious. A man's on his knees saying to his fiancée, to be, would you marry me? And she cries. Most of the time she's crying, it's a good thing. Okay, she's about ready to say yes. There are times when you'll see a, 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 your spouse, perhaps, or one of your children or grandchildren, and you, they're, 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 they're crying. The tears are coming down their face, and it's breaking your heart, and you say, what's wrong? What's wrong? When I see the tears coming down Jesus' face, I'm saying, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he gives two reasons. The first reason, he says, because you, even you, you didn't understand the ingredients for making what makes peace. You think peace, perhaps, is getting the Romans out of your land. That's not peace. Not the kind of peace that I want to bring. A peace that's deep, that tells you that everything inside is okay, that you have shalom, or you have well-being. It's a peace the world cannot take away. The Bible tells us eight centuries before Jesus came, the Isaiah of the prophet says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And his the Bible says his name shall be called the Wonderful One, the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. One of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament is found in Psalm 85 and verse 10, where it says, Mercy and truth are met together, and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I shared in the earlier service that I grew up in the, in the 60s, where we had the peace movement, where the peace sign, where everybody wanted peace. They wanted out of the world, out of the Vietnam War. We wanted peace. But in my generation, there wasn't a lot of righteousness. Righteousness and peace go together. And you cannot have peace without having righteousness. So it happened, it happened in the life of Jesus that mercy and truth have met together. And it happened best pictured on the cross where righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The ingredients for peace have to involve Jesus and understanding who he really is. The second reason he cried you find in the last part of verse 44, because you didn't understand the timing of God's visitation, missed opportunity. What does that mean? It's kind of a, a technical term that we find interspersed throughout the Old Testament. Let me just, are you okay yet? Are you still with me? Or are you smelling tacos or? Okay, I'll go faster. Hang in there with me, okay? The time of God's visitation. We find it with Abram and Sarah. Remember, God said to Abram, come out of your country, Mesopotamia, and out of your kindred, and come to a land that I'm going to show you. And he promised him a land, and he promised him a seed from your seed, 
All the nations of the world will be blessed. He promised them this. And he said, your descendants are going to be like the sands of the sea and of the stars of the sky. The only problem is she's 65, he's 75. They don't have any children. And Sarah says, remember, I'm too old. And the Bible says God visited her. The time of God's visitation is a time of blessing. And she had a child. And from that child came a nation. They were, that nation ended up in bondage in Egypt. And the Bible says God saw their affliction and he visited them. When he visited them, it was a new day. And he brought redemption. He bought them out of bondage. And they were always through the major prophets and the minor prophets. They're always supposed to look back and say, that was our deliverance. Never, ever forget. He brought us out of Egypt. He visited them. During the time period when uh, Ruth and Naomi were, in fact, Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, they were moving to Israel. And that why? Why are we moving there? Because God has visited Israel and given them bread, ending a famine. And there are, there are many, many times throughout the Old Testament, the Bible says God visited. And that visited could have been a couple of angels um, to declare a message. Or that visitation could have been uh, the angel of the Lord that many scholars believe is Jesus himself who came to make an announcement. God visited. But the best visitation is when all that prophecy was fulfilled. And that prophecy was fulfilled and Jesus came to live not for a day, to live for 30, 33 years where they get to see him, to watch, to listen, to touch, to ask questions, to be healed. The day of God's visitation. And they missed it. They missed it. As a result of them missing it, he pronounced the verdict. The day will come when the enemy will come in and hem you in on every side. And it happened 40 years later, 70 A.D., when the Romans encircled the city of Jerusalem, put up the siege wall, and the devastation was not unlike what you're seeing, perhaps in the pictures of Ukraine today. The temple was wiped out, buildings were destroyed, people were destroyed. Why? Because they missed the day of God's visitation that brought tears to the eyes of Jesus. We cannot miss the day of God's visitation. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Help us first as your children to, to understand and explain who Jesus really is. Help us then as, as well, Father, to fill up any hollow spots in our worship where we're insincere, where we're duplicitous, where we're, we want worship for ourselves and not for you. And then, Father, I pray that you would Help us this week, starting today, to map out a week that would bring you highest honor and glory and praise, that we may relive those days of 2,000 years ago, but relive them in a way where we don't miss the opportunities, the opportunities to worship and the opportunities to invite people to come with us for Good Friday and for Easter. 
And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a team of people that prayed for you this morning before the service, and this is what they heard. If you feel in, turned inside out, we would love for you to come down for prayer. Uh, if you have realized that some hidden things have been revealed, uh, we would also like you to come down for prayer. A clear understanding of the gospel presented this morning. Uh, if you have said yes to Jesus or if you are uh, even questioning, how is that for me? How can I uh, have this Jesus that Pastor Doug talked about? Uh, we would love to pray for you. There's a group of people who are trained who would love to meet you down here and pray over you if you're online. Uh, there's a couple numbers. I can see it on the slide right now on the bottom of your screen. If you dial those numbers, they'll put you into a private prayer appointment where we can uh, pray with you and help you. If you have a physical need, spiritual need, a little bit of both, uh, we would love to pray over you for that. Um, I want to remind you, you can get the Way of the Cross pamphlets at the door or at the information counter. Uh, join us this week as we prepare ourselves for Easter. If you are coming back uh, for Easter, service and you have a favorite seat, I encourage you to get here a little earlier, folks, so that you can sit in the seat you want to, but uh, it's going to be a full house, so we will see you next week. God bless you. Come on down if you need prayer.